Commence some Bible prophecy, then we'll get into the book of Acts, chapter 9. We got through about the first 30 verses, 20-some verses last week, and uh, we'll finish up chapter 9 tonight. But uh, good to see you folks, so uh, we'll pray and get right into it. All good? Everybody here okay? All right, good. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the years of dear, dear folks that have come out tonight. Pray that you'd Bless our Bible study time and our refreshment time looking at what's happening with current events in Bible prophecy. Then, of course, Lord, for our youth groups tonight, our WANA, uh, TNT, Rooted Teens, all the groups taking place, pray that you'd bless uh, the leaders tonight, give them strength and understanding and wisdom. And then, Father, for all those that are scattered throughout the building tonight, we pray that you'd work in their hearts, help them to grow closer to you. And as always, Lord, if there's anyone here that's never placed their faith and trust in Christ, might they find him before they leave here this evening. So, Father, we commit all this to you as for your blessing on tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to uh, jump into something that's very current. Uh, We'll get the Acts in just a moment. But here we go. So we're going to start out looking at uh, some current events. Now I'm going to stay a little bit different tonight. I usually go to a more national look at uh, what's taking place, but uh, there's some major, major things that uh, are taking place in the United States right now, which I'm going to hit on. Here's the only uh, international thing I'm going to talk about, and I don't know if Alan's in here right now, Alan Brown, I think he uh, went out for a minute to help with the youth kids. Uh, No, there he is. All right, so Alan informed me tonight he uh, sent me a wonderful clip if you will regarding a major major move again that took place in Israel now we talked last week about an individual named Ben Gavir who is a very staunch hardcore I love Israel and the Jewish people kind of guy very very strong core and uh, he's on Netanyahu's cabinet, uh, and there was a lot of rebellion, if you will, against putting him on, but he's a powerful guy, and part of the concessions was, okay, he he gets to have his seat, basically as part of the uh, Ministry of Defense or security in that realm. Well, if you recall last week, he did something that... uh, really caused a stir and hadn't happened back in since around 2000 when a guy named Ariel Sharon walked up on the Temple Mount as a government official and caused a riot and didn't go well. Well, Ben Gavir said, well, you know, it worked once and I don't care if there's bad results. He goes up on the Temple Mount last week and we talked about that actually two weeks ago and uh, did cause quite a stir. If you were here last week, I read a couple of articles about it. Uh, there wasn't really any major riots that occurred, but uh, Ben Gavir was severely chastised verbally by the United States, by other countries, by uh, multiple groups that said, you know, why are you going up there and causing trouble? Well, in, in Ben Gavir's, I think, reasonable to some degree, it's like I'm Jewish. The Temple Mount is Jewish. Yes, the Palestinians have the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, but it's still a Jewish property. Quite frankly, the Jewish people won it in 1967. The governments allowed the uh, Islamic Waqf, W-A-Q-F, to 
run the place, but he's like, I got a right to be up there the same as anybody else because it's Jewish ground and I'm a Jew. Okay, kind of hard to argue with that. The only argument is, well, the Palestinians don't like a government official up on what they consider their property, even though it isn't their property. Back and forth, back and forth. So he, uh, he upped the ante, apparently. Was that today, Ellen, he did that? Okay. So uh, Ben Gavir says, well, let's up the ante a little bit. Now, understand, who's the main people that are up on that Temple Mount? I should call it. The, I don't, well, uh, it's not, in the, in the Islamic world, they don't consider it the Temple Mount, right? They consider it their property, where the mosque and the dome are. They don't even, many of them are trying to uh, persuade Americans and uh, the whole world that there was never even a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount, which, of course, totally is wrong by archaeology. The bottom line is this. Ben Gavir makes this wonderful statement today and orders the Israeli police that no Palestinian flag is to fly on the Temple Mount. Yeah, ooh. <laughs> uh, I'm waiting to hear when the riots start, and I'm dead serious about that. That is not going to go over well. So uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, uh, this thing has been going on for several thousand years, ever since Jacob and Esau had their split. It's been going on since then, and it's going to keep going on. And uh, uh, just for one question, I think 90% of you should know the answer to this one. When is that tension between the Jews and the Arabs going to go away? When what event takes place? Okay, somebody said the Antichrist. When do we know for sure it's going away? In the millennium. You're right. When the second coming happens, uh, everything goes back under uh, Jewish rule when Christ returns, if you will, or Jewish um, rule is a hard word, but it's a true word, so we'll use it. But uh, you're also, uh, uh, what's going to happen at the beginning of the tribulation period in all likelihood, according to Ezekiel 38 and 39, you have the, the Battle of Gog and Magog, where what happens to the Islamic countries that come over the hills to hit Israel? What happens to them? Boom, they're taken out. So uh, there will definitely be a massive reduction in the Islamic world's influence at the beginning of the trib, which is why that uh, Dome, or Dome of the Rock is going to come down and the temple's going to be put up, the third temple. So it's all these things fit into what's happening, and they're all associated with things that will take place down the line. All right, so I'm going to go, and again, this is highly political, but I don't want to approach this from a highly political genre. I want to approach this from what I'm going to tell you in a minute, but I'm setting the stage so I don't blow you out of the water when I tell you what I'm going to look at in the next minute here. Um, most of you are familiar now that there's a new Speaker of the House, and that person's name is? McCarthy, McCarthy right? All right, so uh, uh, McCarthy is now, if you will, the leader of, of the House. He's the Speaker of the House. Last, I think it was last night or maybe the night before, but uh, I, I saw a good portion of it last night. I got a transcript of his interview with a guy named Sean Hannity. Now, many of you know who Sean Hannity is, and uh, what news outlet is he with? Fake news. <laughs> uh, 
Well, it's, it depends on your perspective. So, again, Sean Hannity on the left and then McCarthy on the, Senator McCarthy, or uh, Congressman McCarthy on the right. And uh, they had, a, a, I, I mean, it was unprecedented what I saw last night. And most of you know, especially because of my background, a lot of politics, and my wife is huge into politics and, uh, and things. I'm kind of in it, but not much anymore, especially from a Christian perspective. I still get involved with what I think are the right things I need to do outside of the church. I don't do much in the church at all uh, when it comes to politics. But here's, here's the point. Again, highly political, yes. Highly partisan, yes. But what I want to look at are the issues that came up during this interview because they definitely affect pretty much everybody in this room tonight. They affect me and others. Um, it affects the entire America. So I want to look at these things. Some of them definitely have a prophetic nexus as well. So I'm not going to read the interview because that would take uh, quite some time, but I am going to go to some of the key pieces tonight. It's not going to be on the screen. First thing they did, and, and we talked about this here uh, first bill that they did was they repealed the 87,000 IRS agents. I, I was shocked that they, they were able to pull that off. Um, but anyway, uh, that was a, a concern not simply because of the IRS and the government issues and the fiscal issues and all that. I was concerned about it from more of a Christian perspective where you've got all these agents watching everything, kind of coming down on American citizens, and that's always can be problematic for God's people and, and the church and tax stuff and um, all of that and tax exemptions. So the bottom line is uh, they got rid of that militia. I meant uh, agents. Sorry. My, 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 my misstep. Uh, the other thing that they're looking at is uh, the current House now is going to look at getting rid of the weaponization of government. You say, what does that mean? It means that for the first time in the history of America, when you have the Department of Justice walking into the former president of the United States' personal property, going in and taking out documents out of his home, of which every president since the beginning of time has top-secret documents that they declassify and can put in their home. So whether you agree with that assessment or not, the issue is they want to start, stop, if you will, the weaponizing of the Department of Justice and other key factions of that from basically, how do you say this nicely? Basically using their authority out of line. That's about as nice as I can say it. Next one, which does have a prophetic nexus, uh, Select Committee on China. Uh, they're making some moves with China right now. Uh, I'm just going to read this line. So you want to bring jobs back from China to America. You want to stop them from buying our farmland. Now, I think that's a huge piece uh, when it comes to prophecy. And you say, well, why is that? Because when we look to the future, specifically Revelation chapter 6, there's going to be a horrible glut on food. I mean, it's just going to be, there's food is going to be like extremely hard to come by. Uh, inflation, well, inflation will be a joke. It'll be the massive depression like this world has never seen, according to Revelation 6. So the issue of, and again, it, could this change back and forth overnight? Absolutely. But it's interesting 
when we look at these things. And uh, so stop buying up uh, uh, farmland. I talked about that multiple times here, that China's been buying up America farmland. Other countries have. And uh, actually, California put out a bill. No more foreign entities buying our farmland. Uh, why? Because if uh, Russia, China, Iran, whoever's buying up farmland, and I'm not saying all them are, but anyway, uh, they buy up the farmland, and they say, uh, we're going to make it, we're not going to allow people to farm on it. It's our land, it stays fallow. Well, okay, we, we have maybe a surplus now, but what happens a few years down the line when they buy up more farmland and more farmland, next thing you know, you don't have any food supplies. So it's a problem, and uh, they're trying to stop that. Uh, not next thing, you want to stop them from stealing our intellectual property. Now, again, that's getting a little bit up here, but uh, intellectual property is basically, all right, so let me, best example I can give is this. Uh, so when I was with the sheriff's office, I have a sheriff's office computer, a laptop, and the sheriff it went wherever I went, and there was things on there that were very specific to the sheriff's office, um, some things, well, everything on there. It, it was intellectual property that belonged to who? Not me, because it's on what? It's a government computer, it's government information, and everything on that computer belonged to what? The government. So the issue is that is intellectual property. So the day that I uh, retired from the sheriff's office, guess what happened to my computers? Say bye. They, they confiscate everything and take it and uh, put it back into circulation because it's their intellectual property. All right, so what's the point? The point is if Russia got a hold of my, and I mean, this is really far-fetched, okay? But if another entity, let's just say another government, got a hold of that laptop and they cracked into it and they started getting things and they said, oh, this is cool, we can use this to do X, they've stolen what? Intellectual property. So that's a very, I mean, that's just a little teeny example. We're talking about big, massive things that are taking place in Washington, uh, CIA, FBI, all these different entities, and if they're able to crack in and steal things, is that a problem? Of course it is, all right? Uh, so when you're making deals maybe as someone in government with China and they're getting a hold of intellectual property, is that a problem? You read between those lines, read real hard between those lines. It was very specific what I was pushing at. If you didn't pick up on it, it's okay, we'll do it. And I don't want to go to jail either. Anyway, uh, let's see. He'll be looking into now, this is a quote. I'm... It's, it's a tough quote. So they said they will be looking into the quote-unquote, I didn't say this, they said it on this program, the Biden family syndicate. <laughs> I'm just quoting what they said. I don't say I agree with it or disagree with it. I'm just reading it. Now you say, well, why is that important? And again, I'm delivering this not as a political person. I'm delivering this as, here's what's going on. Here's the massive issues we have in America. Now, let me ask you a very important question. And we got a bunch of biblical scholars in here. Is the United States of America in Bible prophecy? It is not. It just isn't. And uh, 
it's not there. Now, people have tried to say, well, maybe it's here, maybe it's there, maybe it's Babylon, maybe it's the eagle, which should have been translated vulture, and maybe it's here. It's not in there, folks. It just isn't if you take the Bible literally. Now, again, I know there's entities, other teachers that uh, that you may listen to and say, oh, no, absolutely, America is this, that. Uh, you have to spiritualize or allegorize the text to get America. So you say, well, what are you saying? I'm saying is there's no proof that America is going to be here uh, once we move forward into Bible prophecy and the tribulation starts. So the bottom line is these are issues that could lead to our actual destruction someday if we don't get a hold on things. And the way we're headed right now, with the current way the government's running, if these things that we're just talked about don't take place, we are in jeopardy. And I, I sincerely believe that. So I'm very, very happy on one hand that this is taking place, the dialogue's happening, uh, that which we've all strike that, that which many of us as conservative Christians have said, enough's enough. What are you doing to our world? What are you doing to our economy? What are you doing to our land? Uh, and, and what do you, it's just been rough couple of years. So I'm happy on the one hand that these things are being looked at. You know why I'm a little sad about this? Because if all these things change back and all of a sudden America starts behaving again, it's like, man, I, I thought the rapture was two seconds away, and if all this stuff goes back, it's like it may delay it a bit. But, uh, you know, who knows? But uh, I'm just throwing it out there. Uh, let's see, you've got to secure your border, and we're going to use every power we have to make sure we protect this country and look out for the American taxpayer. Again, I know there's going to be uh, uh, folks that are on both sides of the immigration Im issue. Um, here, i got to tell you this one. So... If a foreign person tries to get into our borders and they haven't gone through certain things such as COVID vaccines and some other things, they don't get in. There was, and some of you may know who this is, and I can't remember the name right now. This, I'm, and I'm not kidding, this literally happened about a month ago. There's a speaker that was going to be speaking at one of the, was either Republican or Democrat groups. I'm not going to tell you which one you can figure it out. Anyway. This lady was coming in from another country. Couldn't get through our customs because she hadn't been vaccinated. Kicked her out. She was speaking at the convention about a month ago. Do you know how she got in? And I am not kidding you. She went down to the Mexican border, walked right in like she owned the place. I mean, seriously, right? Anyway, by the way, from a prophetic nexus, who's going to be running everything someday? Who's going to run everything in the future when the tribulation hits? The Antichrist. You all believe that? All right, Revelation 13. <laughs> He's running everything. He starts off on a medium stage, if you will. All the world then falls in love with this guy. And then in the middle of the tribulation period, the better known as a great tribulation, Luke 21, 24, and Revelation 13, the entire world turns to him and they worship him. Remember, everything that I'm bringing up here is because in Revelation 13, three major things take place. And most of you should have these memorized now. 
there's going to be three major things in the world that will be controlled by the Antichrist, uh, Satan, and the false prophet, the Satanic Trinity, Revelation 13. This isn't makeup. I'm not allegorizing or spiritualizing. It's right in the text. Three major things are going to take place in the world. A one world what? You see, you probably heard two or three things because you all know them. One world government, one world economy, and a one world religion. That is absolutely unequivocally going to take place. Of course, uh, and again, some folks are newer. I, uh, most of you know the timeline backwards, forwards, and upside down because uh, our young people, they don't like doing repetition. And they said, stop doing all those charts every week. So I did, but I'll bring them back on occasion, but uh, it's all good. But uh, we're looking right at, at the next major event on God's prophetic calendars, the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, 1 Corinthians 15 to 54, and a Christ comes on the scene, Daniel 9, 27, confirms a peace treaty with what group of people? Israel, the Jewish people. That's when they build the what? The third temple, all right? So the third temple is going to get built. They'll have uh, their sacrificial system will be reinstated. Now the Jewish people that are running that third temple, are they Christians? No, they're Orthodox Jewish people. They're 100% sold on the, old, uh, on the Old Testament. They're not following Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Uh, they just believe in, if you will, the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, do you understand that the Jewish people do not believe in a trinity? They don't. One of their huge problems with Christians is we have three gods. Right? No, we don't have three gods. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all three one. Jewish theology does not allow for that, period. It's like there's God and God is God and God is God, period. That's it. Uh, so it's a problem. All right, bottom line is uh, um, rapture, seven-year tribulation, middle of the tribulation, everything turns to where the Antichrist is the dominant world leader with the one-world economy, one-world government, one-world religion. Uh, verse 16, anybody that doesn't worship the false image and the Antichrist, what happens to them? Dead. So massive reduction in population. Um, two more questions. I got four more minutes before I go in the next section. Uh, what percentage of the world's population can we document will die during the tribulation period? What percentage? Nice and loud. Okay, and one third. Do I hear anything else? 50%? Two thirds? All right. The, all of you had a correct answer to one piece of prophecy. <laughs> So we're going to, have to take all four answers and make it into a, a complete package here. When the tribulation begins, Revelation chapter 6, verse 18 says one-fourth of all the world's population will disappear. There's 8 billion people on the earth right now. If the rapture happens today, and uh, which it could, and the tribulation starts tomorrow, that means 2 billion people disappear in that first part of the tribulation. Someone else said one-third. Th one You're correct, too, because you would go to Revelation um, 9, 18, and one-third of the world's population dies. So if we have, see if my fingers will work here. So if we have four quarters, right? So in the first, first thing that happens, Revelation 6, 8, boom, one-third of the world's population is, or one-fourth world's population is gone. You go to the 
Next one, Revelation 9, and uh, one-third of the world's population disappears, which leaves you with what percentage? 50%. So here's the next problem. That's two judgments of the 28 that exist in, in, in Revelation. You say, wait a minute, there's only 21. No, there's 28. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and here's one everybody forgets because it's not spelled out. What's the next one? Seven what? Thunders, Revelation 10, but God said, seal it up. I'm not going to tell you what they are. Seals, trumpets, thunders, bulls, or vials. Okay, based on what version you're using. All right, that means we still got 50% of the world, and there's 26 judgments that have to take place. But Matthew chapter 24, verse 22 says, unless those days will be shortened, not a single person would survive the tribulation period. Now, short to what? Short to that seven-year period. Uh, again, speculation, but based on all the other judgments, which are very deadly catastrophic judgments, almost every single person on this earth could be gone by the time uh, Christ comes back. So that uh, eight billion we have now, uh, those that are trying to work on depopulating the world, when the tribulation hits, folks, it's going to be severely depopulated. So it's, it's a terrible thing. Oh! Somebody said two-thirds. Let's talk about the two-thirds, which is also a correct piece of prophecy. Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. Two-thirds of what group of people are going to be killed during that time period? Jewish, Jewish people. All right? So you're all correct. It was just a matter of what you were talking about. <laughs> all right? Makes sense? All right. I think we've had uh, uh, enough uh, on this, but... Uh, it's, I mean, folks, does it get any more interesting than right now? It's like we've watched for two years things go that way. Now, all of a sudden, even though, um, and again, I, it's like it's really hard not to say things that have a political nexus when everything that surrounds us and everything with government is political. So please excuse me when I say things, but it's not trying to push an agenda it's simply to point out what, what is taking place in our world today and how that, how that may or may not affect us. But I'm telling you, it's affecting us. Anybody check their tax bill this year? It's affecting us. Anybody check your gas bill this year? It's affecting us. Anybody check when you went to Aldi, as I did the other day, and paid five bucks for a dozen eggs? Outrageous. <laughs> and it is. I mean, and, and, and I mean, inflation is just going cuckoo. Uh, it's still sitting around 9%. That's not healthy for a country. Oh, but wait a minute. How does that fit into a prophetic nexus? The one world economy. Folks, that's real. It's coming. You say, ah, you're, a, you're a, one of those crazy guys that, that's prognosticator and coming up with this weird no folks it's not weird read Revelation 13 last three verses no one may buy or sell unless they get what I didn't write it it's not some silly prognosticator this is some serious bible so it's going to happen the dollar is eventually is going to happen in our lifetime if it happens in my lifetime, I hope the rapture happens first. Because once all these things get turned over and the government goes in the very, very wrong direction, again, who's, who's, okay, I said I was going to stop. Last question. I'm going to turn to my next computer. 
Who's the God of this world? Oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Isn't God the God of this world? Where do you get that from? Oh, the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Who is the God of this world? Well, the small g God of this world, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, is indeed Satan. Do you think if God... The Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit were running this world, that this is the kind of world he would run? Absolutely not. Our world's messed up. And uh, when Jesus returns, one theocratic dictator in the best of senses will indeed run this world after the seven-year tribulation when, he's, when Jesus himself sets up his 1,000-year millennial kingdom. So it's going to go through terror, it's going to go through catastrophe, but eventually Jesus comes back, only that which is righteous enters into millennium, and then we go for a thousand years, and that's for another night, right? Lots to talk about. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 9, verse 19. We'll start there where we left off. And by the way, if you want to, uh, we are on... uh, on live or on a multiple different streams right now, feel free. Uh, I, I, I basically have resigned myself to if somebody wants to ask a question, make a comment during any of the classes. We're always on video, folks, so uh, you are not on camera. I will tell you that much. Uh, some of your voices, if they're nice and loud like mine, might get picked up on the mic. Otherwise, it will not. Most uh, I repeat most questions or comments if you have something you want to say. That's perfectly fine. Uh, so don't, if you're like, oh, we're on camera, we can't interrupt. You can interrupt. It's okay. It's fine. And interrupt's a bad word. You can participate uh, if you so choose. All right, Acts 9, verse 19. So when he had received food, now we're talking about Saul. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the conversion of Saul, whose name was changed, or it wasn't really changed to. What's another name for Saul? Paul. So it's the Apostle Paul. And uh, the Apostle Paul, of course, being one of the greatest missionaries, uh, uh, writers of Scripture, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tremendous missionary, preacher, teacher. And uh, what was he, he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that he was the chief of what? Chief of sinners. Why in the world would a guy call himself the chief of sinners? What was Saul doing before he had a little encounter with Christ what was he doing? Why, what, where, was, where did they find Saul? Or where? It's kind of a weird way to put it, but where did Jesus encounter Saul? What was he doing? Okay, he was on the road to Damascus, which is going north from Israel up into Syria. And many of you know pretty much about Damascus. Well, let's take a look at it. All right, so he was leaving Jerusalem. He got letters from the chief priests that hated the Christians, and he's like, well, head up to Syria and Damascus, or Damascus in Syria, because Syria's the big one, Damascus is the city. Go up there, and you get all those rotten Christians, and you bring them down, you arrest them, you do whatever it takes place. All right, so Paul, Saul was on the way up there, and who encounters him? Christ does. Jesus himself has an encounter with Saul, basically knocks him off his horse to get his attention, and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the gold. So we show you what a gold was last time. It's basically, I mean, simplest illustration. It's kind of like a, 
uh, uh, spear that you poke Mr. Ox in the uh, tail end. That's a nice way I could put it. And uh, what happens sometimes when that ox gets goaded? What does he do? He's like, oh, not on my watch, and kicks back. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goad. And uh, uh, the ox is kicking back, and he's like, Saul, you're just like a dumb ox. I'm, I'm, I'm goading you, if you will, and you're kicking back at me. You're out there trying to kill God's people. It's not a good idea. So he said, so when he had received food, uh, uh, bottom line is Saul said, okay, what do you want me to do, Lord? And all of a sudden, God starts working on his heart, working on his mind, just like he does on us. And all of a sudden, uh, and we talked a little bit about the application of that, God will do things to get our what? Get our attention. Get us involved. Pull us in. It's like, here's what I want you to do. And uh, we went through quite a few things on that, which I'm not going to repeat. All right? So Saul now... He's, he's in Damascus, he gets some food, and he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So he's up where we just said, up, up in Syria, Damascus. And some things now are going to start to happen in, the, in what will be the Apostle Paul's life. Here's an individual that God called out. This guy bad word, but this guy is going to become one of the greatest Christians of all time, one of the greatest missionaries of all time, one of the greatest preachers and teachers of all time, one of the greatest uh, uh, used of God to write Scripture. And again, let me make this very clear. Did Paul, careful, it's a trick question, did Paul author the books that he is the author of in the Bible? Who Who told him exactly what he was going to write on those papers? Well, the Lord did, okay? So we go to the Scripture. You say, well, where does that come from? All Scripture is what? It is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness, that the man or, and I, I like to put woman in there because it applies to both, that man or woman might be perfect, basically mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Inspiration literally means God's God breathed. Uh, basically, Revelation 22 makes it clear that if you change anything in God's Word, what's, what'll happen to you? The plagues will be added to you. Okay, so God takes His Word very seriously. So uh, uh, the Bible is indeed the inspired very Word of God. God used the Apostle Paul. Sorry about that. My screen got messed up here. Uh, as a, a major contributor, if you will, when he wrote multiple books in the Bible. Verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues. What? So here comes Saul. Everybody in the known world feared this guy. He's a bad dude. He kills Christians. And now he goes into the local synagogue. By the way, and we, I did a class, several classes on this, I don't know, maybe six, eight months ago. Is the synagogue something that was required in Jewish law? No, it wasn't. The only thing that was required in Jewish law was one place, which is the temple. All right, so the synagogues basically came about after the destruction of the first temple, and all of a sudden these Jewish places where uh, 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 Jewish people would meet and basically turned into what's known as synagogue. Now, you'll find that throughout Scripture, of course, Jesus preached in synagogues, disciples preached in synagogues, others did. So it was adopted, but it was never a requirement in the Old Testament law. But again, 
uh, it definitely was used. So, but Paul, he, he, Saul goes into uh, the synagogue and he starts proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God to Jewish people. How do you think that went over? Well, it went over good with some, but boy, the ones that didn't buy into it, it didn't go so well. Uh, so what is Paul? He gets right with God. He gets saved. He trusts Christ as his Savior. He realizes who Jesus is, and he starts to preach immediately the Christ. Why do you think they use the word Christ here, not Jesus, or not Lord? Why do they use the word Christ? Say what? Anointed one, Christos, is another word for Messiah, all right? So the Christos, the Mashiach, uh, uh, the Messiah from the Old Testament. So he's preaching Christ because that word corresponds with the Old Testament Hebrew of one who is the Messiah. So he's preaching Jesus is the Messiah. That was pretty tough for them to hear. But Romans 10, 17 reminds us, written by Paul, by the way, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So then faith comes by what? By hearing and hearing by the? Word of God. Wait a second. So you tell somebody your testimony. Well, I was going to church and I heard the gospel and I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and received him. And uh, you need to do the same thing. How many verses did I use? Zero. So you say, well, Brother Rich, uh, when you're giving the gospel to others, and by the way, on Sunday mornings we had two weeks we've been talking about the gospel and how to present it to others. The gospel is not found, it may be found and incorporated into a testimony, but is your testimony without the word of God the gospel? It kind of is not. You might describe the re what you did as a result of what you knew from Scripture but I like to use the Bible when I'm telling others about Christ. Yeah, the Bible says that we're all sinners and come short of the glory of God. I finally realized that. That's different than saying, yeah, I knew I was a sinner. Now, can God use that? Sure, he can. But I really like to use the word of God when I'm talking to someone. Why? Because Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is what? That is what? Alive and powerful. It's quick. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and even of the binding asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrows and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, so the, the Word of God is so important. So Paul's saying, listen, faith comes by hearing and what? Hearing by use the Word of God. And that's exactly, I know what Paul was doing as he preached Christ from, by the way, was he New Testament written yet? Uh-uh. What was he preaching Christ from what word? The Old Testament. You say, is Jesus in the Old Testament? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, messianic prophecies, 351 separate prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus' first advent. It's amazing. Uh, I won't get into it, but boy, Bible school, I don't know why, but boy, it was kind of, we get into a bit of drudgery when you go, is the Old is the Old Testament, the New Testament, or vice versa? And you start doing all these heavy-duty contrasts and comparisons. Good stuff, but it did get tedious. But it's in there. That you, can, you can take that to the bank. All right. Immediately preached the Christ, the Messiah, in the synagogues that he is what? He is the Son of God. Uh, uh, they, they were 
eyewitnesses to this. Now, Paul wasn't, but of course, others were. Uh, Jesus himself, uh, uh, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent to the world, you are blaspheming? And Jesus says, because I said, Jesus said what? I am the what? The Son of God. All right, Jesus made it very clear, and uh, that's, of course, the blasphemy that uh, the Jewish people killed him over. By the way, is this punishable? If, when, okay, let me rephrase that. When Jesus said, I am the Son of God, was that punishable by death in Roman law? No. So when the Jews wanted to kill Jesus and they go to Pilate, and they go to the Roman government, and those, I mean, they, they hate Jesus because he said, I'm the son of God. But that doesn't, that, that doesn't cut it with the, Roman, with the Roman people. That's why Pilate says, what? I find no, I don't find any fault in him. Get him out of here. Of course, uh, there was a little change in the direction when the people said, if you're, a friend, you're not a friend of Caesar, then uh, you, shouldn't be, you shouldn't be in charge. And all of a sudden, he decided to change his tune. Okay, I guess we can scourge him and kill him. Nice guy, huh? Here's the point. How did they condemn Jesus, and how did they actually get him crucified? On what charge? Insurrection. Not because he said, I'm the Son of God. They, they trumped it up to be, no, he's, he's, uh, he's trying to take over your kingdom. He's trying to take over the government. And Jesus said, my kingdom is where? in heaven, but they kind of twisted it. Well, you know, he's an insurrectionist. That's how they got death penalty. Lied. Verse 21, Then all who heard were amazed and said when, it, when they heard Saul speaking, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Now, folks, let's, let's think about this. <laughs> Do you ever get scared of some things you hear the government's doing? I mean, seriously. Just between me and you. You're not on camera, remember. You say, oh, Rich, you get, you get some kind of, sometimes get a little worried about things the government does and what they may do to you? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. And I have encounters you don't know about. Yeah, they're tough. They're powerful. There's things they do that <laughs> most people have no clue. But we have enough clue. And you see some of the things that happen. You see some of the people falsely convicted. And you see some of the people that end up falling out of windows and all the rest of this nonsense that takes place. But here's the thing. Think about these Jewish people. They were under the same situation. Now, not only is the Roman government their enemy, but now, wait a second, this Saul guy, and we're, and we're talking about those that have converted to Christianity now, they're scared for their lives. And folks, very, very reasonably so. I mean, the persecution is off the charts. You've got the chief priest saying, you go kill those people, put them in prison, do whatever it takes. Now, you're here at Union Grove Baptist Church tonight. If that kind of an edict went out yesterday, do you think you would be here tonight? Some of you would. Most of you would. <laughs> you say, well, is that all the faith you have in us? No, I just know human nature. And when you get scared, most people are like, I don't want to jump in front of a moving bullet. You go underground. 
It's just human nature. So most people aren't going to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, would you please kill me tonight? Right? Well, that's what these people were literally facing. I mean, it, it, that's, that's the culture at that time. So uh, 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 they were scared of Saul. They're like, listen, this guy can put us in prison. This guy could kill us. He could ruin our family. So they're scared of him. And in my opinion, rightly so, verse 22, but Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So they're listening to Saul preach, and they're like, okay, I think this guy's the real deal. And uh, he's going to gain acceptance. Not quite yet, but it's getting there. Verse 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. All right, so now we get into an exegetical issue, meaning there's a lot more to what, what is here than you might read on the surface here. After many days, what is that talking about? Did he stay there? Did he move on? Well, we've got to go to a companion passage in order to figure it out. So we've got to pop over to Galatians chapter 1 and look at a couple of verses that kind of explain between verse 22 and verse 23, after all these days, what took place. So Paul has got to be taught the gospel. He's got to understand things that he didn't understand before as a Jewish individual. So he gets some uh, serious Bible training, and that Bible training came from one person. Who was it? Jesus himself is teaching the apostle Paul. You say, where do you get that? Verse 17, Galatians 1, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia, and I'll show you the map where that is. I went to Arabia and returned again to where? Damascus. All right, so he's, he's in Damascus, which you saw on the map before. Now he's going to a place called Arabia, and I'll show you the map. And then he does what? He goes back where? Right back to Damascus after many days had passed. All of this time period. Well, how long was the time? Verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. All right, so sometime in, in here we have this, uh, Jesus goes to Arabia, somehow wherever in Arabia, because it's a huge landmass. I think I got a pretty good idea where it was. I'll show you. Uh, uh, he goes to this solitary place, which I believe it was, where he's now taught specifically what God wants him to know. Verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. So, uh, if you will, the expositors, the scholarly community believes this took place right between verse 22 and 23 of uh, Acts chapter 9. So here's basically, uh, you see where Jerusalem is, Syria, Damascus, just a little bit north of that. And uh, basically, this whole other area is part of uh, Arabia. Now, if you go down to where, you see where it says the Red Sea? I didn't bring my pointer here. You go to the north part of the Red Sea, which is the southern tip of the Dead Sea, which is just that little sliver on the map above the Red Sea. And across the Dead Sea is Jordan, which was part of Arabia. Uh, Jordan is, in my guess, because he was in a Nabataean area. The Nabataeans are the ones that built Petra. 
Mm. So when you go to Israel, a lot of the times you also visit Petra, which is a beautiful place. I've shown pictures here before. We'll do it again in the future. But Petra has, uh, it's like about as wide as this aisle to get into it. It's, it's, uh, it was considered in the day, and of course with airplanes now it's a different story, but it was an impenetrable place. Massive Nabataean village was carved into the stone, sand rock, and uh, they literally lived in there. I got a sneaky suspicion, I can't prove it, but that's kind of where he was. It's not that far uh, from Syria. All right, so let's move on. You see that red ring? Basically all that was part of the Nabataean area, uh, Arabia that is. So it's, I mean, it was a huge landmass, but again, why in the world would he walk hundreds and hundreds of miles? I think he went into the Jordan area. I can't prove it. All right, verse 23. Now after many days were passed, which we just looked at, apparently uh, some three years, the Jews plotted to kill him. All right, they've had it with him. So here you got the guy that was what? Saul was trying to do what to the Jew or to uh, the Christian people? What was he trying to do to them? Now they're ticked off at him and they're trying to do what? Kill him. So, I mean, you talk about uh, uh, things changing. So Paul's life is in huge danger. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night to do what? To kill him. Now, this type of lingo is hard for most of us to understand. Now, you watch the news, you know there's 140 to 200 murders in Milwaukee every year. Folks get murdered all over the place every year. Most of us, it's like, it's like, yeah, okay, you know, you read the news, another person got killed, they got shot, they got stabbed, they're dead. And it's kind of like we grow cold to this. So when you think about somebody whose life is seriously in danger and being threatened, if it's never happened to you, it's like hard to comprehend this. Well, think about Paul, Saul. I mean, he's literally, seriously, his life is on the line every single day because people hate him and they want to kill him, all right? Uh, It's hard to comprehend, but it's, it's a horrible way to have to live. But by the way, did Paul say, I'm all good with it? Was Paul good with it? He actually, he actually was. He said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I consider all the stuff that I had rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. That's a pretty good attitude in my book. Verse 20 24, but their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Ha! Huh. You want your loaf of bread to stick Paul in a basket? Down he comes. Now, isn't that kind of weird? I mean, you're talking about the city walls, which were significant in the day, and the folks that did love him said, listen, we got to get you out of here. They're going to kill you. And uh, obviously God wasn't through with his ministry yet, and it's like, well, we're going to get you out of here and get you on your way. And that's exactly what took place. Now, we got Saul, this bad, bad dude, this bad guy that hates Christians, and that's his reputation. And when Saul came back to Jerusalem, where is he coming from? Syria, Damascus. He's heading back down south. What did the people remember Saul was going to do when he left Jerusalem? What was his mission? Kill Christians. And now Saul comes marching right back into Jerusalem, and they're like, 
Oh boy, here he is again. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem from Damascus, he tried to join the disciples. Now, it's very interesting here. I'm not a super grammarian, so you are. But uh, that particular word he tried is what's known as the imperfect verb tense, which implies what? Multiple failed attempts. It's like he tried and he tried, but the disciples were like, uh, you just keep your distance, brother, and want nothing to do with you. So he kept trying to join the disciples and and become part of uh, what Jesus had started with them years ago. But they were all what? They're afraid of him. Reasonably so. This guy kills us. Why in the world do we want to befriend him? And did not believe that he was a disciple. Well, what's... Let's play spy games for a minute. So, and again, this gets a little out of most of our ranges of thought. But what do you think about when you think about a spy? Any ideas? Deceitful, undercover, good at what he does. Huh? Huh? I, sneaky. sneaky, yeah. I mean, these are the guys that are covert. They come in and, and uh, looking like a sheep, but what are they? They're out there to get you. And uh, that's exactly what's taking place here. They're like, oh, uh-uh, uh-uh, we're not falling for this one. He's coming in looking like one of us. He is not one of us. Don't trust this guy. Well, let's see what happens. This is one of the great uh, passages, I think, in Scripture. Of course, they're all great, but this one really has a, a wonderful theme to it. So we're going to meet Barnabas, and his name means what? Son of encouragement. This is a guy who loves people, loves to do right, loves to help others. So we come up to Barnabas. He knows about Saul's conversion. So he took him and brought him to the apostles. So what kind of a reputation did Barnabas have to have with disciples? He takes this guy that nobody else wants to deal with, and he says, come on, Saul, let me take you to the boys. And he takes them to the disciples, and how do they react? Well, they're looking at Barnabas. They know he's a good guy. They know he's an encourager. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. Now, who are we talking about now? Saul, and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem and basically the term coming in and going out, he was good to go. He was with them. He had freedom to uh, come in and out, if you will, with where the disciples were, which means they began to do what with him? Trust him. Now, folks, is trust an easy thing to gain? You ever been betrayed by somebody or somebody that severely offended you? How easy it is to give their trust, give your trust back to that person. Proverbs makes this statement: A brother offended is harder to win than a what? A strong city. What he's saying is, let's just talk about Jericho for a minute. Use that for an example. You remember the walls of Jericho come tumbling down? 
Remember that? They go marching and marching around it, and finally the walls come down. Well, when you think about a, a, a secured area with walls and fortresses and weapons and uh, in our vernacular, machine guns and tanks and air force and all those great things. The Bible says it is harder to win someone you offended than to win that city that's protected by all that weaponry. Is that pretty tough? Let's just take a two-minute caveat here. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Have you ever offended anybody that really got fired up mad at you? Now, believe it or not, that's happened to me. How do you win that person back? Well, here's how I do it, and it's different. But some of the biblical principles don't change. If somebody's really fired up at me, I want to know why they're fired up at me. Let me know. What'd you do? What would I do? And they're usually more than happy to tell me. And we usually know on the surface what it is anyway. It's like, okay. If, if it's not a conviction on something that I seriously cannot bend on, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my sword out and I'm going to fall right on it. Slip me open. You say, are you serious? Aren't you going to fight for what you, th what you think is right? No. Nope. If it's a conviction, yes. If it's a preference or if I was out of line, I'm going to fall on the sword. And I'm going to take that big old ugly black crow and I'm going to eat him and it doesn't taste good. And then I'm going to apologize. And then normally, I will do a gift in secret of some sort. Nobody else knows about it. I'll send it to the person. Now, don't personally try to offend me, so I send you a gift. <laughs> but I'm serious. I mean, it all comes out of Proverbs. There's not a whole lot of things I'm willing to die for, so if it's not something I'm willing to die for, I'm probably going to eat crow. Now, if it's something that it's like, well, we're going to agree to disagree on some of this, but fall on the sword. Well, here's what takes place here. He had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus, so he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and out. So somehow they gained trust. Whatever he did, however it was presented, they finally realized, yeah, this guy is truly one of us, meaning what? That he had truly received Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and was out there fighting for him. All right, and he, Paul, verse 29, spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed among the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. All right, now we talk about the Hellenists in the past. Remember now, we're in, in that world, the Hellenists basically were Greek-speaking Jewish individuals that adopted eh, the, the, the Greek culture. Uh, and that's what this says. So it's derived from uh, uh, the Greek word, generally refers to one who speaks Greek, but came to refer to those of non-Greek origin, especially Jews, who adopted the Greek language and customs. Now we have this group of people, these Hellenists, who are diehard in the culture. Now let me ask you a question. Do you deal with, on a daily basis, people that aren't part of the Union Grove Baptist Church culture? And what is that culture? The culture is we believe certain things that a great percentage of the rest of the world does not believe. And the Hellenists were saying we believe X, 
but Saul, you believe, why? And we aren't real good with that. Do you have to deal with that today? Absolutely you do. Every time you go to work or every time you go to school or every time you go to your neighbor or every time you go to the grocery store and it's like, you know, remember when Michael McCrory was here, evangelist? And uh, what organization is he with? Bible Tract Echoes. And he did something we, we don't do very often here, but he did it. I'm glad he did. And uh, we had a packed out place and he said, listen, I'm going to ask all you to do one little thing. I want every single person here that's willing, take one track, just one, and give it out. And I don't, you know, I was not videotaping, but uh, a great percentage of the people said, I'm in. And, and, then, and then you get your one track, and it's like, man, I can't believe I raised my hand for that. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to do that. I got sucked in. I got emotional. No, I think you tried to do the right thing. And all of a sudden, what? The culture says, I don't like people that pass out tracks. So all of a sudden, we get a little scared. We get a little cattywampus. Now, not everybody, but some do. And it's like uh, the conviction comes on you, and it's like, ah, I got to get rid of this one track. I know what I'll do. I'll mail it to one of my relatives. You know, it's like, well, that's good. Good for you. You did it, right? Uh, but here's the thing. Paul is dealing with a culture that hates him. They hate the Jewish, uh, 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 or they hate the Christian message, and they're fighting against him. And Saul is having to work with this when he knows he's on the short end of the stick. All right, so what does he do? Um, whoops, I, I skipped ahead here. Uh, and he, Paul, spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. We'll come back to that slide. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. All right, I think I missed one verse in here. Uh, verse 30, which t- says that uh, they took Saul and he, they sent him off to what place? Tarsus. Look, it's in verse 30. I didn't put it on the screen. I forgot to. But anyway, he goes up to Tarsus. And he's going to stay up there for a while. So the whole book of Acts now for three chapters is going to switch to talking about Paul to making Peter kind of the focal point for the next three chapters. So Paul goes back to Tarsus. By the way, where is Paul from? Tarsus, all right? So he's back up there. And now we're going to switch gears and head into the next section in verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, again, remember, Three portions of Israel. Let's go to it. Oops, wrong one. Let's try that one. All right. So if you look on there, pink is Judea, blue is Samaria, upper section is Galilee. The, then the churches throughout of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, basically all of Israel, had peace and were edified. Well, and that's something. Paul disappears and all of a sudden peace comes. Uh, why did all that happen? Unknown. But bottom line, Saul's out of there. He's up in Tarsus. And now we have peace, at least for a short period of time, uh, in all three regions of Israel. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. So the Christians are starting to expand. They're multiplying. The gospel's going out, which is still in 2023. Is that one of the mission, or is that, I think I will call it the mission of Union Grove Baptist Church. It absolutely is. 
It's essential. Uh, 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 Jesus said in the, in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm, miss, I'm forgetting a verse. Uh, I want to say 1910, but I don't think that's right. Bottom line, Jesus came to the world to seek and to save those who are lost. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. That's, that's the mission. We're still on that mission this year, and we'll continue to be so until t- God takes us out of here. All right, so the bottom line, uh, all those places that were just talked about in, uh, in uh, X, and now we have all these places. Now the gospel's going out, and it's advancing. Verse 32, now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt at Lydda. Now, if you look in the middle of the map, you'll see the big word Judea, Jerusalem to the south. Up just a hair to the left, you see Lydda, and then a little bit further off, you, can you see the word Joppa? All right, now in England, or in, uh, currently if you go to Israel, they don't call it Joppa anymore. They call it Jaffa, J-A-F-F-A. Um, been there many times. It's a, it's a seaport, and they still got a bunch of stuff. They got, uh, by the way, who got, who got sent off to uh, Tarsus from there besides Paul? Who? Tarsus, that's the right place. Where's Job, or uh, where was uh, Jonah? There, thank you. Where did Jonah go? Where was Jonah sent to? Yeah, Nineveh, from what place? Well, from, he was actually in Joppa. That's the seaport. That's where they kicked him out, and he tried to run the wrong way, so they got all these fancy little figurines of all that there. But anyway, that's another story. Bottom line is uh, Lida, Joppa, that's what he's talking about here. And uh, let's move on. Verse 33. And he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Jesus said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. So I tell my kids every morning when they're at home. Like, you read this verse and get it right. You say, Brother Rich, do you make your bed every morning? I do. You say, seriously, you make it every morning. I got a king bed, so it takes a while. And I'm very restless, so it takes a while to fix it. But you say, well, why do you do that? Same reason I told my kids to, character. It's a simple thing. I'm giving you a family lesson right now. It has nothing to do with this. You say, you mean uh, every morning your kids got to get up, they got to make their beds. Oh, you you betcha. Did they have to clean their room? Oh, boy, that was a chore. Anyway, yeah, they had to, they got to clean their room. They got to make their bed. Uh, they better be down uh, uh, for dinners on time and so forth. And, and it's like character. That's how you train kids to do right. You say, oh, you're a mean daddy. Uh-uh. No, I wouldn't. Don't have to be mean about it. You can love them and say, hey, uh, did you get your bed made? No. When you get it done, come on down. Does that mean? Well, the kids think you're screaming at them, of course, but it's like, well, make a bed. It's that simple. Anyway, let's move on. Anyway, we have Aeneas, bedridden. Eight years this individual can't walk. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, uh, uh, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise, make your bed. Then he rose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon, now where's Sharon, saw him and turned to the Lord. All right, let me show you where it is. All right, so if you look off to the right side, that's the map I showed you, and you can see where Lida is. You can see Mount Carmel, which is a little, little bit north of where you see Caesarea on the map, and then if you look to Joppa, 
If you look on the left side of that first picture, that is the plain of Sharon. So it's not a city, it's actually a area uh, known as the plain of Sharon, also referred to as Sharon in the scriptures. All right, 2 Corinthians 12, truly, wait a minute, what just happened to Aeneas? You just got healed. Now, wait a second. He walks up to Aeneas and says, hey, stand up, buddy. Get going. Is that a little unusual? I guess not. <laughs> is it a little unusual for some guy to get healed in public? Hey, you betcha it's unusual. It's a miracle. I want to remind us, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says what? Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The apostles were endued with a very specific miraculous power that God gave to them, supernatural. And and again, I hate to use the word power because it sounds like, ooh, they could point their finger and make things happen. No, God allowed them to be the vessels through which he would work. And he did mighty, mighty miracles and signs and wonders during the apostolic era. Why did those things take place? Why were there signs, wonders, and miracles, all these different things? Why did God allow them to do that? To do what? Why? What? Validate them. Absolutely. Listen, if somebody walks in here tonight and they do some miraculous thing, What's going to happen to my jaw? It's going to fall down, and I'm going to say, wait a minute, I've taught that those things have passed. You didn't get that? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. You see, are we doing miracles in the church today? Be careful how you answer that. Be careful. That's a trick question, too. Can God still do miracles today? Absolutely can. Well, salvation, yeah, I will call that a miracle. But he can do a lot of things. Can God heal the sick? He can. Does God raise the dead today? That might be pushing it a bit. Now, I've heard of people that have died on the table. They push them out to them, get ready to put them in the mortuary, and boom, all of a sudden they stand up or come to life or start breathing. Cool. Did God use a healer to do that? Uh Uh-uh. See, the difference between then and now is... Peter walks in and says, up you go, buddy. Up he goes. If I, I mean, I wish I could do that. I honestly wish I could do that. I think a lot of you wish you could do that too. I'd start with myself and put some of my parts back together <laughs> that are broke. But we unfortunately, when the apostles passed off the scene, so did some of those signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. Let's move on. Verse 36, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. Anybody know a Tabitha in our church? Yeah. yeah, she was just in the sound booth. Anybody know who Tabitha is? It's my daughter. That's why we named her Tabitha. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is the Aramaic Hebrew name meaning gazelle or blessed one, which is translated Dorcas, which is the Greek name. Now, in our culture, Tabitha does not like to be called Dorcas. All right, it, it, it just doesn't work uh, in our particular culture. Uh, so she prefers to stick with Tabitha. So if you want to really get her mad, which I don't suggest you do, and then you can call her the other name, 
And uh, I'd stand back about six feet. Anyway, uh, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, what, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. Terrible thing. When they had washed her, which was Jewish custom, they laid her in an upper room. So Tabitha, loved by people, uh, worked, did wonderful things. She was a great seamstress, helped people out, loved people, which is why we named her Tabitha. And all of a sudden, bam, gone. People are in an uproar that this great woman is gone. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Why do you think they sent for Peter? Just because they like Peter? Well, he's a disciple. Maybe he can perform a great funeral. Why'd they call for Peter? They knew he could perform miracles. He was an apostle. Hurry up and get Peter. Verse 39, then Peter rose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas Tabitha had made while she was with them. She was a one, and they're speaking of uh, Tabitha. There she is. I'll turn around and look at her. <laughs> she just ducked. But there she is. She's lying on the bed. She was the one. She helped us. She loved us. She cared for us. And now she's lifeless. Peter rose and went with them. What did he do? Verse 40. Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. I've seen this portrayed, uh, there's a, a theater called the Miracle Theater in uh, Sevierville, Tennessee. We got season tickets. We went to this every single night for years with it, um, when we go there on vacation. And every single time I watch these, them portray these miracles, guess what I did? Y'all, you, you should know me well enough by now. What did I do when I saw this stuff? I cried, man. It's like, man, I just get moved. It's like, man, look at that. And it's just so miraculous. It's wonderful. And, and it's a, and like, wow, this is, this is a miracle. This is something that I can't do or anybody else. And all of a sudden, bam, here she, and up she goes. I mean, it's, <laughs> Then he gave her his hand to lift her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So Peter says, listen, rise up, Tabitha. Now, you don't think that got the people's attention? Of course it did. And they're like, woo, did you hear what, did you hear what Peter did? By the way, what happened when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Did that go, did everybody just say, well, forget that? What happened when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Whole communities like, they wanted to go and see him. They wanted to see Lazarus. They wanted to see the, uh, the one that raised him from the dead. Why? Because these miracles authenticated that they truly were sent by God. Verse 43. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. And that will be the rest of the story next week. But uh, isn't this good, though? I mean, just, and we're closing now for sure. But uh, just think about what took place here. Wonderful miracles, wonderful authentication. God takes this guy who killed Christians, gets his attention, and now 
He's going to be that apostle to the Gentiles, the Jews as well, and do some of the greatest work God's ever done on this earth. It's amazing. By the way, do you know God wants to use you too? Do you know God wants to use you? Think about who you are. Think about where you've been. Think about what you've done, good, bad, or ugly. And God wants to use you. He wants to use where you came from because it taught you certain things. He wants to use who you are today because you know him if you trust, place your faith and trust in him. And you can do things that no one else in this room can do. You are very, very, very important to the Lord, and he needs you. You say, God doesn't need me. He can do things on his own. I beg to differ. Now then, Christian, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, be reconciled to God. God needs you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Father, I pray now that uh, as we close down tonight, thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here in this building. Father, thank you for a reminder of what tremendous things took place when Paul was brought to Jesus and then became one of the greatest apostles of all time, great missionary, great teacher and preacher. And Father, right now there's, and right now, right here tonight, there's people right now that are working with young people, sharing with them, same thing that Paul did 2,000 years ago, Father, would you use them tonight as they seek to reach into the hearts of the young people? Lord, if there's uh, anyone here tonight that's never placed their faith and trust in Christ, maybe this is uh, uh, new to them. Maybe the Bible's new to them. And Father, I pray that uh, as they hear what you've done, the things that you've done, that they'd see that, yes, we're all sinners. And because we've sinned, not a single one of us deserves to go to heaven. But Jesus Christ, your Son, came down from heaven, died on a cross for our sins, was buried and three days later rose from the dead. And you promised us that every single one of us that would place our faith and trust in what Jesus did on that cross and paying for our sins can have eternal life. Father, I pray that we might all understand that. Now we ask that you dismiss us with your blessing. Keep us safe, Lord. Look forward to uh, going back into the battlefield. Protect us, Lord, as we uh, do our best to live for you. May the Holy Spirit guide us. And we look forward to being with our family, our church family, uh, Sunday morning. And we look forward to what you're going to do there. Father, we ask that you bring in uh, visitors. Help us to be faithful this week. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful night. Thanks for being here.